0: On the last episode of Lilac Wine, the podcast, Robert finally makes it to Lily Springs. He is met by Ellie's welcoming committee and picked up in a Model T Ford year 1913 by Billy Miles and goes for a joyride. We are releasing this podcast one chapter at a time, so if you missed that and the other episodes, please go back and take a listen. I don't want you to miss anything it was the summer of 1917 as america prepares to shed her blood on a distant shore two lonely people are brought together by fate torn apart by war consecrated by wine lilac wine Lilac Wine. Chapter 10 Billy Miles was excited to have Robert in town. Although he had grown up with Frank Herman, the only other person in Lily Springs born in 1900, there was no one left in town close to Billy's age. Frank had left Lily Springs more than a year ago to work for Streckfist Steamer, a company based out of St. Louis and known for their paddleboat excursions. Frank's father, Carl, had also worked on a steamer, and both Frank and Billy spent long afternoons watching the paddleboats glide down the river. For several years, Carl worked on the JS and would sometimes bring the two boys on board for short trips. It was in the large dining hall of the JS, where the boys were first exposed to the live, ragtime music of its famous four-piece band, which included Fate Marable on piano. The Lone Negro played among white musicians and had a commanding presence over the piano. It was magical for them to watch his fingers rattle the keys. Frank often remarked how he wanted to play the piano like that but conceded that he truly wanted to work the boats like his father. Whenever the J.S. made its way past Lovely Springs, Frank and Billy waited on the muddy bank. And there was Carl on the upper deck, waving to them as the ship passed, a big smile on his face. In 1910, the J.S. caught fire near Bad Axe Island, about 25 miles south of La Crosse, Wisconsin. A cigarette, carelessly tossed in a stairwell, was the most probable cause of the blaze, and the wooden ship was quickly engulfed in flames. Panic ensued, and although most of the 1,200 passengers survived once the ship ran aground, Carl Hermann perished when he attempted to free a man who had been locked in the brig on account of drunkenness and disorderly conduct. According to witnesses, Carl was helping people off the deck when someone yelled about the man down in the hold. First making sure the gangplank was secure for the evacuating passengers, Carl then turned and entered the smoking bowels of the steamer. Never to be seen again. Carl was hailed a hero, and his Widow was presented $5,000 in restitution from the Acme Steam Company, it was generally agreed that the captain and crew behaved exceptionally through the entire ordeal. Although other parties filed all sorts of lawsuits against the company, nothing stuck. John Struckfest, the captain of the ship, paid Frank and his mother a visit to offer condolences and to personally tell them that Carl had died a hero that day, and many people owed their lives to him. He told Frank that when he was older, he would be proud to have him serve on his ship. Billy knew that Frank's time in Lily Springs was limited. After the accident, whenever the two of them were walking along the banks of the river, Billy noticed Frank's eyes, carefully following a steamer sauntering by the bank, no doubt thinking about his father and his own future upon the river. In 1911, John Streckfist bought the Diamond Joe steam line in Dubuque and a few years later offered 16-year-old Frank a job. Billy and Frank were inseparable growing up. They played together, went to school together, and sipped the legal liquor together. Their two families were neighbors and friends. The boys' mothers had a competition as to who was going to be born first. Frank won. He was the first to leave the womb and the first to leave Lily Springs. Billy was envious. But he couldn't leave his family, no matter how much that desire for locales beyond the ever-shrinking Lily Springs yanked at his imagination. His father relied upon him at the mechanic shop, and, although Billy would never admit it, he knew that he would remain in Lily Springs and eventually take over the business. He practically ran it now, as his father's hands were getting more and more arthritic, and the engines and automobiles getting more and more complex. Billy almost exclusively serviced the autos now, leaving the wagon wheels and the farm equipment to his father. After leaving the post office, Billy drove to Mr. Eckert's general store and purchased a couple of bottles of Bevo, a near beer made by Anheuser-Busch. It wasn't the same as the real thing, that was for sure, but Anheuser-Busch saw the writing on the wall and, with 26 states now prohibiting alcohol— The company saw an opportunity and began promoting Bevo in 1916. The all-year-round soft drink, they called it. Luckily, Mr. Eckhart had a few bottles on ice. That was really the only way to drink the stuff. Soft drinks in general were getting harder to come by because of the rationing of sugar. Consequently, Billy had not even seen a bottle of Coca-Cola in several weeks. Some locally produced sodas were available, but... Most of them were sweetened with beet sugar instead of the refined cane sugar found in most commercially available products. Although most people claimed not to tell the difference, Billy always tasted the subtle presence of beet on his tongue. He'd take a bevo over a beet sugar soda any day. What the hell is this? grimaced Robert after taking a sip. Near beer, it's the best we could get here, my friend, replied Billy. Although he was supposed to take Robert on a tour of Lily Springs, he turned off the main road after a quick turn around the triangle and drove the truck down a winding path to the river. Where are we going? asked Robert, noticing that the town was quickly disappearing behind the dust of the automobile. Just a little diversion. It wasn't much of a road, just parallel wheel ruts cut into the dirt. Billy turned into a small clearing near the railroad tracks and shut off the engine. "'I'll have to walk from here,' he said. Crossing the tracks and following a path through the brush, they made it to the bank of the Mississippi, to the same clearing where Billy and Frank had passed countless hours in years past. He offered Robert a cigarette. Without a glance or a word, Robert took the cigarette and proceeded to remove his shoes and socks, setting his bottle of Bevo on a fallen tree. He then rolled up his pants, and stood in the water, the unlit cigarette hanging from his mouth. "'Be careful,' said Billy. "'The mud might not let you go.' Robert smiled. "'That's all right. I feel like Huck Finn.' Billy leaned against the trunk of the tree, inhaling deeply the cigarette. "'Yeah, never got that book.' A paddle boat was moving up the river. "'You ever been on one of those?' asked Robert. "'A friend of mine's dad used to work on one. "'Grew up on them practically.' I'd like to do that someday. Billy struck a match against a tree and held it up to Robert's cigarette. I don't see the fascination, actually. I guess growing up here makes someone like me not care too much about the romance of the river that people talk about. Just water and boats. Nothing to it. It's Americana, Billy, replied Robert, letting out a puff of smoke. Let me ask you this. Why did you bring me down here? I don't know. Because you knew that this was a special... Hey, I just wanted to get out of that town. Robert turned back towards the river. I think you probably come here a lot. I would, that's for sure. Billy flicked his cigarette into the water. Sometimes he lied. Me, Robert continued. I don't got the Mississippi River. Got the lake and the Chicago River. Not the same thing. Too many people. No solitude. Sometimes all you need is a little solitude. It's good for the soul. Boring as hell if you ask me, Robert laughed. A matter of perspective, I suppose. I guess there's not much difference between a dark theater and a muddy riverbank. What do you mean? Nothing. It's just that I spend a lot of my free time sitting in dark movie theaters. I've been to a movie once in Dubuque a year or so ago. I go several times a week or spend my time drinking alone in a bar, Billy sighed. We don't got bars here anymore. Obviously, Robert said, glancing at the mostly full bottle sitting on the tree. I learned about that when they closed the bar car on the train once we left Galena. I almost jumped off. I've been to a bar in Potosi. That's across the river in Wisconsin. They got a brewery there and everything. And there's several bars in East Dubuque on the Illinois side. On Friday nights, you should see the log jam on the bridge heading into Illinois. He reached into his pocket and removed a small metallic flask. Here, he said, offering it to Robert. Robert unscrewed the cap and inhaled the smell. Whatever it was, it was strong, and Robert grimaced. What is that? I don't know what it actually is. I think it's called corn. I get it from Earl down in Wampaton. He makes it, and whenever I need spark plugs or something, I get a fill of this, too. Robert took a sip. Stronger than most liquors he had tasted before, with a very prominent aftertaste of grain. A little gritty, too. Not at all like the vodka or schnapps that he sometimes drank in Chicago. So that's what happens to a liquor when it gets banned. It's all we got, my friend. Robert swallowed another gulp with another grimace. Better than nothing, I guess. He handed the flask back to Billy, who also took a swig. There's only one other person in Lily Springs I know who's got a stash of booze. At least that's what most people think, anyways. Makes her own, they say. Yeah? Who's that? Abelia Brody. She's the one Art told you about? Supposedly, her cellar is full of bottles she makes from the stuff she grows in her garden. The sheriff talked to her once about it, but she never got in trouble. Why not? Keeps to her own, somewhat a recluse never been married, so most people automatically make assumptions about her. Now, I've never had a problem with her, mind you. In fact, she's been nothing but nice to me, but I don't know anyone in town who considers her a friend. Is there something wrong with her? Billy laughed. (laughs) Not as far as I could tell, just lonely, I guess. But who isn't in this town? Come on, we gotta get going. I promised Art I'd run the route with you before dropping you off at his house. Billy started his way up the path. Hey, if you do a good job on her garden, he added, maybe she'll give you a bottle of something. Robert flicked his cigarette into the river and attempted to pull his feet from the mud. They were stuck fast, and only after the third attempt was he able to free them and leap onto the drier portion of the bank. "'Told you so,' said Billy, stopping on the path. "'That mud's like Lou!' Robert picked up his shoes and socks, his feet covered in dark mud, and hurried to catch up with Billy, who had already turned and continued walking up the path. "'So, tell me more about this woman, Miss... "'Brody,' said Billy. "'Her name's Abelia. A lot of people call her Abby, though. "'How old is she?' "'I don't know. About my mom's age, I guess. Maybe a little older?' As they came to the car in the clearing, Billy began talking in a hushed voice, as if the trees had ears. That was just how one talked about others in a small town. It was habitual. Everybody gossiped, but they did it in their most quiet voices. He explained to Robert that no one knew anything about Abelia and that people have filled in the details of her life from their own imaginations. Don't believe everything you hear, he said. Some people believe that she was married to a wealthy man out east and had run away due to some scandal. One rumor to hit town a decade ago was that Abelia had murdered a man, stolen his money, and moved to Lily Springs, hiding from the authorities. Some claimed that she was a notorious bootlegger, which would probably be closer to the truth, Billy added with a chuckle. Mabel Glassman had once suggested that she was a long-lost sister "'of Theodore Roosevelt, but no one believed that. "'You can see it in her eyes,' said Mabel. "'She's definitely a Roosevelt.' "'I could tell you this, though,' said Billy. "'He pointed to the front of the car, "'indicating that he needed Robert to crank the engine. "'She's got money, that's for sure. "'I've seen the checks through the envelope. "'They are drawn from a bank in New York. "'One arrives every month or so for a hundred bucks.' She just simply deposits it in the bank after getting it. Over the years, she must have a bundle stored away. I have no idea what she spends it on. Robert cranked the handle and the car sputtered to life. Hey, maybe one day you and me could go to Potosi or East Dubuque and get some real beer, Billy said as he and Robert climbed into the seat. I'd do anything to get out of here. With that, the car jerked forward up the trail to Lily Springs. So I just decided to go with a minimalist approach with that reading. Uh, in the last chapter, used a lot of special effects, a lot of music. So in this one, I just kind of wanted to go with the reading, although I did put in a little bit of ragtime when talking about Fate Marable. Fate Marable and River Boats, these are going to be coming up more in the coming chapters. But, you know, I don't know. Um, I was thinking about how audiobooks are read. (laughs) I don't know how those guys do it. Um, It's really hard to distinguish voices. I'm learning. Um, Now, in this chapter, we have, of course, Billy. Billy is the, you know, the main POV in this chapter. And uh, we have Robert, and they're very similar in age. Robert's a couple of years older than Billy. And it's, it's really kind of hard to distinguish their voices when they're so very similar. So I try and make you know, Billy's voice a little bit higher, I guess. I don't know. And, and as I was reading this, I was thinking to myself, wow, it, it's probably better just to read silently than to read out loud. Don't get me wrong. I'm loving reading it out loud. I hope you who have stuck with me Those of you who have are enjoying this process as well. Now, in this chapter, uh, the research that went into this chapter, of course, involved Bevo, a near beer that was made by Anheuser-Busch. In 1917, they were advertising all over the place. I don't know what it tasted like, but uh, they had billboards up all over the country, and they sold it 10 cents a bottle. And so um, I thought since Iowa's dry and sugar rationing was coming into effect that perhaps um, a little bevo would be something interesting that uh, they could drink. Now, um, we're also going to go to Illinois soon or on a riverboat, I should say, and uh, they'll be getting their um, their hands on some actual liquor. Real liquor that's not Bevo or corn liquor as well. Uh, One of the uh, main arcs in this, your background information, is the story of the J.S. Steamer that, um, of course, we had um, uh, Billy's friend, Frank Herman's father, had died on. And I got all that information from the Telegraph Herald. The Sunday paper, June 26, 1910, had the story of the J.S. that caught fire and was grounded on Bad Axe Island. The headline for that newspaper is 1500 Lives Imperiled When Big Excursion Steamer Burns on Mississippi. Uh, excursion steamers and excursion rides were a big thing at the turn of the century. A few chapters ago, we talked about the Eastland in Chicago that capsized in the Chicago River. On the Mississippi, these things were a big deal. Jazz musicians were coming out of New Orleans in and around the time of World War I and started playing on the riverboats, which helped move jazz out of the city. And Fate and Marable was one of the early ones, and he was on a lot of those boats that moved up and down the Mississippi River. But this headline says, A steamer JS is destroyed for our dead. Big passenger boat is burned to the water near Victory, Wisconsin. Captain Streckfus, a hero, his prompt work in beaching vessel saves lives of hundreds of Passengers, frantic scenes on board. Uh, Yeah, so um, uh, Carl Herman uh, died aboard that. And um, there were four deaths aboard it. Uh, Mrs. Emma Randall, she drowned. And then there was John Plain from, uh, from Iowa, Norman Fox from Wisconsin, and also an unknown man. And so... Uh, I they may later identify the man, but I wanted that to be uh, Carl, and that gave then the whole arc of you know Frank Herman leaving Lily Springs and basically leaving Billy alone. When I first started writing this, Billy was a minor, minor character, and I think it was with this chapter in particular that Billy began to get more of a life of his own, and he's going to become a major player. And I've truly enjoyed writing his story. I'm not quite done with his yet, um, but I do know where that is going to go. We're going to get more hints of his background in in an upcoming chapter when he and Robert sneak aboard a steamer for a night of jazz and drinking. As well. And so we also get a little bit more of Abelia. We get some of the town uh, rumors about her. We get the fact that she, you know gets money, as we mentioned in another chapter every month. And the townspeople speculate as to where she gets all of that money. And we have also Billy who who, who seems to admire her a bit, and that's gonna play a role later on so that was chapter number 10 so we have been doing this now for over of over uh 10 10 weeks and uh i'm thoroughly enjoying reading it i hope you are enjoying listening to it if there's anything i can do to make this experience better for you let me let me know you could go to Lilac Wine Novel, and you can leave a comment on our bulletin board. You can uh, email me, you know, from lilacwinenovel.com. Would love to hear from you. Uh, let me know how I'm doing, you know, your opinion matters to me. I want to make this one of the best experiences ever. And if you are enjoying Lilac Wine and you have anyone in your lives who you think would also enjoy this historical romp back to 1917, let them know to pass on the word. Next week, we are going to have Robert and Abilia finally meet. So that should be interesting. Until next week, I am Bruce Janu, and thanks again for listening. This podcast is produced by Bell Book and Camera Productions. Visit bellbookcamera.com for more information. Lilac Wine is written and produced by me, Bruce David Janu. All content is copyrighted and cannot be used without expressed written permission. If you are liking Lilac Wine, the podcast, please take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes. That will help us gain more listeners. Connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter as well. The intro voiceover was provided by my colleague and friend, Rachel Vissing. We work together on another podcast at the school where we both work. That podcast is We Are E.G. and tells the stories of students and staff at Elk Grove High School, but demonstrates that no matter where you are, we all have something in common. Check that podcast out at weareeg.org and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. All music and sound effects are licensed through audioblocks.com. Please visit Lilac Wine Novel to join the discussion. Ask me questions, make comments. The purpose of Lilac Wine, the podcast, is to discuss the creative process. Your comments and suggestions are greatly appreciated. Thank you for listening.